Acts chapter 2. We began last week just a mini-series before we jump back into Romans chapter 9. We're going to just be talking for a few weeks about the church. And we decided in this time, last time I did a series on the church, it was actually uh, back in 2018. So it's been a number of years. And before we jump back in for uh, our study through Romans, I wanted to spend a a few weeks doing this. We're using primarily Acts chapter 2 to do that. It's not my intention to walk through the entire chapter in detail. But rather seeing this as uh, for what I believe it is, and that is the birth or the beginning of the church of Jesus Christ, I think there are some things that we can glean from it that we can apply uh, into the church present. Looking at the church past, of course, at its very beginning, there are things that we can learn and apply to the church present. Now, I do need to say this before I read the passage. I realized about five minutes ago that I forgot to put my uh, scripture references for connecting verses into the slideshow. So I may ask you to turn to some of these and uh, I'll use my, the Bible we provide here, and I'll, I'll call out page numbers when we want to do that. Because one thing I, I don't like to do is waste a ton of time waiting for everybody to find uh, one chapter, one verse in Nahum or something. I want us to have, have most time explaining the text, and so I love the tool of the, the PowerPoint demonstration so we can put those up there. But today we'll have to, we'll have to use our Bibles together. Let's read um, the first four verses of Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Let's just pause now and ask God's blessing on the word preached. Father, we have come now to the time in our worship service that we give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching where the Word itself will be preached. And I pray that you would help me to do that, that your Spirit, even in these moments, would gift me and enable me to be clear and concise and to say the things that I'm saying with love and directed to the congregation, and so I really ask for that. And I ask that as the word goes forth, it would be powerful in the hearts and minds of those listening today. And so we ask this in the name of Jesus, amen. Now last week we began looking at Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, which is the first time the word church appears in your Bible. And I want to get to that in a moment and just review it for a minute, but let me begin by saying this. Uh, 
We have, in the beginning of the book of Acts, foundations in understanding what the church is and does. We do not have enough information in these beginning chapters of Acts, or really throughout it, to completely flesh out a good understanding of the church and what it is and what it's supposed to be doing. These are merely foundations laid out in the context of narrative and story. Really, to flesh out our understanding of the church, we have to look into the letters. The letters that the apostles went on to uh, teach the churches themselves and flesh out in more detail the things you read in the narratives of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then in the beginning of church history in the book of Acts and giving us more clear instructions about who we are and what we do. But there are things that we can glean from here in Acts chapter 2 that we'll be learning uh, from. But I want us to guard against the approach that says, They look into the book of Acts, and especially in Acts chapter 2, and the idea is we just need to get back to the good old days of the book of Acts and the church in the beginning and how it was. We need to avoid that because I think it's, though well-intended, it's wrong. What we find very quickly as the church unfolds in the book of Acts is that it was far from perfect. And there were many things that they had to learn and to work through. You can't get past chapter 5 without the first two professing believers. And, uh, well, the two, first two professing believers who died in an act of discipline because they lied to the Holy Spirit. Ananias and Sapphira who lied about the amount of money they had and didn't give as they should have. And God wanted to bring fear into the equation of this idea of the church. By Acts chapter 6, you have people bickering already. Their bickering went so bad as they had to form an entire office to take care of it. By Acts chapter 15, they're having to convene a council of all of the church leaders because by that time, the gospel had gone out to the Gentiles and you had Uh, Judaizers, as they're called, wanting to impose the Mosaic law upon the Gentiles, and that had to be corrected. As a matter of fact, as you study throughout church history, beginning in Acts and working all the way through these last 2,000 years, there is no such thing as a golden age of church history. There is no point of history and time that we're all saying, we just need to get back to that time. If you study church history, you will quickly find that the church at every point of time in its history had major problems. They had sins, they had wrong doctrine and theology. As a matter of fact, as the way God unfolded things, as the way church history has gone and the history of the church itself, you see that at different times and in different seasons of the church, they had really had to wrestle with core key doctrines that we now uh, take for granted, like the doctrine of the church or the doctrine of justification that we've learned so much about in the book of Romans. We, or, or the doctrine of eschatology, the end times, the things that as the church has grown, and I'm talking about the church universal now, all believers in all times and all places, as it has grown, it has matured in many ways. We wouldn't want to resort back 
to some of those days, though, yes, God was working in unique ways, and we read that, and we say, wow, that's great, and that's neat what God was doing, but there are many things happening behind the scenes that needed correction. I believe that a proper interpretation of Ephesians 4 is showing that the church universal, the body of Christ, is at all times growing and developing into maturity, into a full-grown manhood, Paul says, into the head who is Christ. This has been happening for 2,000 years, and it will continue, I believe, until Jesus returns. God does not want us to read through the book of Acts and say, we are supposed to do all of these things. This is all what we're supposed to expect at all times in church. We're not getting back to anything. Actually, we're not going back to a golden age of Christianity at all. We're, We're progressing towards the golden age, you see. It's a forward movement and momentum as the church continues to grow, as Jesus fulfills His promise to build His church. We're moving forward towards that. You read through the letters of Paul and Peter and James and Jude, and you detect very quickly, do you not, that each of those were written in the context of a local church that was having some problems. And Paul or Peter or James or Jude had to write to warn, to guide, to rebuke, to correct. Read through the seven letters of Jesus Himself, to the churches in the beginning of the book of Revelation, he writing to churches, they all had problems. The only one they didn't reprimand was the church that was experiencing such increased uh, persecution. But all the rest, there were places in which Jesus himself told them, now you need to be quick and repent about this. And change your way of thinking and behavior. So the church in every age has had its problems, just like we have our problems now. Last week, as I said, we started with Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Very simply, Jesus promises this, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's the first time the church enters into the New Testament of your Bibles. And it's interesting, as we noted last week, that it comes from Jesus himself. And that tells us some things about it. You'll remember that the word church is ekklesia in the Greek. And it They had in their minds an assembly of people called out and gathered for a purpose. An assembly of people. It is not a building. The building is what we use as the church, but the church is the people gathered, called out for a particular purpose. When we gather together on Sunday mornings, we are being mostly as much the church as we can be, you see, in this world. As we're gathering together, we're assembling together. That's what the church does. And, and it's only as we have to leave here and scatter throughout our daily lives that we're bringing the gospel and glorifying God in our daily lives. But our goal, our desires, our priority should be to be gathering together on Sunday morning as His people and at other times even with His people throughout the week. The assembling is the priority of the people of God. We get that right from the name. We learn that it belongs to Jesus, right? He purchased it with His blood. Jesus died for His church. It is His. Paul said in Acts 20 that He bought the church with the blood of His own, meaning His own Son, who died for her. 
to redeem her out of slavery to sin and to save her, give her an eternal future and hope. We belong to Jesus. I will build my church. And then we said it's a future promise. As we'll touch on in just a minute here, that the church is not ethnic, uh, geopolitical Israel. Distinct. It's a distinct new entity. It's not a replacement in, in, in some ways. It is a replacement of, of uh, God's uh, covenanted saved people in this world, but God still has a plan for that ethnic people, Israel, but the church is not Israel. It's not a continuation of that nation. It is distinct. I will build my church. It wasn't in existence then. And then Jesus said, it can't be stopped. And that church history shows us is true, isn't it? Right from the very beginning, Saul of Tarsus did everything he could to persecute the people of Jesus Christ, to crush out the church. And Jesus does what Jesus did, continued building his church. And I love this in Galatians 1. He says, Paul says, I known in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They were only hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. Jesus said, the gates of hell themselves will not prevail against my church, and this man Saul of Tarsus will not. I will save him. I will transform him. I will make him an apostle and set him apart for my own gospel just to show that my promise that no one can stand against the church is true. This is all a work of Jesus Christ that cannot be stopped. Now, look at chapter 2 and look at verse 1 of Acts. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. The context, the time for the birth of the church was in Jerusalem, and it was during the, the uh, festival of Pentecost. And as we'll see, that is no coincidence. Pentecost was one of seven important observances on the Jewish calendar, and one of the three that devout Jewish males were to make their pri- uh, pilgrimage into Jerusalem from wherever they were to observe. So at this time, of course, there would have been thousands and thousands of Jews who were spread out, had come in and descended upon Jerusalem, just as they had done on Passover, and they descend in there, and they're all in there doing what the law requires them to do. It gets the name Pentecost from the Greek word 50th. That's simply what it means, 50th. It's a number. And it gets that because it comes from the ceremonial law that God commanded of the Feast of Weeks. As a matter of fact, they were told that seven full weeks from Passover, they were to observe this uh, Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks, or 50 days. The 50th is what it became known uh, by them in the Greek language. And it was a celebration and a commemoration each year for the Jews at the end of the grain harvest. It was somewhat of a harvest festival, if you will. And it was a time of rejoicing, faithful rejoicing and worshiping of God. Directly connected to Pentecost, and this becomes important, is the Feast of First Fruits. 
That actually was what happened 50 days earlier, 50 days before Pentecost. It happened on the Sunday following Passover. It was the first day of the week for them, and the day following the Sabbath over, they would have the Feast of Firstfruits, and they were to take the first parts of their grain, which at that time apparently would have been barley. They bring them to the priest. He does some things that he was commanded in the ceremonial law under Moses to do and waves them forth. And it was really a time of faith. It was a faith offering, bringing these first fruits of the grain, believing and trusting that God is going to fulfill over the next seven weeks and 50 days the fullness of what they could expect that he was going to provide for them. But God had a much bigger picture in mind for these two observances than what they understood them to be at the time. You'll notice in Acts chapter 2 and verse 1, it says that when the day of Pentecost arrived. Let me draw your attention to that word arrived. It's an interesting word in the underlying Greek text. It is the Greek word plerao or a form of it. And it is used in Matthew chapter 5, which I... I, again, don't have on the screen, but it's in verse 17 of Matthew chapter 5. Jesus uses this word. And he says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come to abolish them, but to, listen, fulfill them. That's the word. As a matter of fact, in Acts chapter 1, or Acts chapter 2, verse 1, it's a strengthened form of that word because there's a little preposition on the front, meaning to fulfill completely, to bring to a full completion. Now, think about this as you read Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost was being fulfilled, most literally. When the day of Pentecost was being fulfilled. I think that's a tremendous difference from just a time marker in the Bible that Luke is putting here where there were words he could have said when the day of Pentecost literally just arrived. In other words, let me set the scene for you. It was Pentecost, the day arrived. No, it was when the day of Pentecost was being fulfilled. You see, because what... Luke, I think, is implying is this, that all the times from the beginning when God commanded His people as they entered into that land to begin observing this Feast of Weeks, to have this festival of the grain harvest, God had more in His mind for that festival than simply grain, like barley and wheat. He had something far greater in mind that one day, listen, would be fulfilled. And that happened in Acts chapter 2, we're being told, when God poured out the Spirit on His people and the church was born. So He was pointing to a far greater harvest than any kind of grain any kind of wheat or barley, but a harvest of souls. Now was the time, you see, when Jesus was going to reap the souls of whom he has purchased by the outpouring of his Holy Spirit. Every year they were to see that, but didn't. Missed it completely. But even as Jesus arrived and 
clearly fulfilled these things that they were promised in the Old Testament. They didn't see them. By the way, all of the ceremonial laws, listen to this very carefully, all of the ceremonial laws given to the Jews were significant, but not in and of themselves, but because of what they pointed to, the person and work of Jesus Christ. Being fulfilled, being fulfilled in Jesus. This is what this was pointing to, is what, what Luke is trying to tell you. And it is no surprise, as a matter of fact, that Jesus was crucified at Passover. Did you know every year the Jews were to observe Passover, this important remembrance, this festival in which they remember the time that God had delivered them out of Egypt? Do you remember when he sent those plagues upon Egypt, he came to the last plague, which was going to be the killing of the firstborn of every uh, household in Egypt. And they, the Lord told the Israelites that what they were to do is take a lamb and sacrifice it. They would take the blood of the lamb and put it on their doorpost as a mark over their house. And they, the Lord promised, now, as the angel passes through and strikes the firstborn of everyone in Egypt, he'll see the blood and he'll what? He will pass, he will pass over you. Remember Fanny Crosby's song? When he'd see the blood of the Lamb that had been slain and the judgment comes, what happens? He passes over those people. They're delivered through the blood of the Lamb. It should not surprise us then that Christ comes. John says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And it should not surprise us who Paul, being a Jew, who could now read those things so clearly, read Passover so clearly, probably said, how did I not see this? From the very beginning I was so blind. And he would say, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are in leaven. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed, you see. Do we have a Passover lamb? that has been sacrificed, that we receive by faith, whose blood is us so we don't face the judgment? Yes, we do. And his name is Jesus Christ, sacrificed for our sins. It is no surprise to me then that the feast of first fruits on the first day after the Sabbath of Passover, that they were to commemorate the beginning of that feast of weeks, really, and it happened on that Sunday of Passover week. Friends, what happened on the Sunday following Passover when Christ was crucified? He rose again. The resurrection on the day of the first fruits. And it should not surprise us at all that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, Christ has been raised from the dead, listen, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. He goes on to, to say, we'll all be raised, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Do you see it? He saw it clearly. You probably still remember the priests waving it in the air. 
Christ is the first fruits, the guarantee that we grasp by faith that though we die, yet shall we live, that He will fulfill His promise, indeed, one day, to raise up all of His people from the dead so that we can be with Him forever. And then, of course, the 50 days later, when Christ promised to build His church by sending His Spirit, begins on the the harvest festival of time in Pentecost. Friends, we are a people now who are to be enabled, you see, to read those things in the Old Testament and see Jesus. Do you know what distinguishes the church from Israel? Let me tell you, one of the number one distinguishing characteristics of the church from the nation of Israel is that when we do read those things, we see Christ. When they read them, nothing. They see the Feast of First Fruits. They see the Passover. They see all these things. They don't see Christ. This is why Paul himself, in talking about his own ethnic people, said this, their minds were hardened for to this day when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, you see. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yet to this day, and we can say it's true 2,000 years later for the vast majority of Jewish people, that whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts, you see. They just can't see Christ on the pages of Scripture. It's because their hearts and minds have been blinded by the devil. Matter of fact, Paul said later on in that book in 2 Corinthians, he said, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And this is why, friends, listen, when you, when you are engaging with people you love, and you believe in Jesus. And you read your Bible and it's special to you. And it warms your heart. And you, you just love Jesus. And they don't. And you're tempted to say, how can they not see this? Friends, it's because their eyes have been blinded. And the only thing Paul said that would remedy that, he says later on in the book of 2 Corinthians, is that God who shone the light, His light into our hearts, shines His creation light into their hearts. He actually says, let there be light. And all of a sudden, they see with new eyes Christ all through Scripture. Christ as what it was all pointing to. Now, friends, the ceremony can be encouraging for us when we use it like we just did. We look at it, we see its purpose, we see it fulfilled in Christ, but we are not commanded nor encouraged as the church of Jesus Christ anywhere to be keeping these laws. As a matter of fact, I would argue and build my case, and I think it's a pretty good case, 
that we would be encouraged not to try to incorporate these ceremonial laws into our lives. There are well-intentioned believers who are trying to do that. And I would say that one of the, again, one of the distinguishing characteristics of the church and the new covenant and the new covenant people of God is that they see the fulfillment of these things in Christ, but no need to be fulfilling them anymore. They've served their purpose, and they're still serving their purpose in pointing us to Jesus Christ, you see. We're not supposed to be incorporating these into the church, and especially not trying to make other people do it. This was happening in the early church, and it's understandable. You think about, you get Jewish people who come to faith in Christ in an adult age, and all they've known in their whole lives is following these festivals. And then all of a sudden, they're saved, and the Spirit lets them see Jesus in all these festivals. And so now all of a sudden, maybe they take on a whole new meaning for them, and they're able to enjoy them in that context. That happened in the early church. But the problem came in as they were trying to make everybody else be that way, and especially the Gentiles. Paul wrote in Colossians that you are not to let anyone pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are all a shadow of the things to come, but the substance, literally, the body of Christ. He's the point. They were the shadow. You see a shadow coming. You know somebody's coming around the corner, but now Christ has appeared, and He is the one now we hold on to. They were all designed to point to Him. So the church from the very beginning begins meeting on Sunday, no longer Saturday. The church would no longer be observing the Old Testament ceremonial laws, the dietary laws, the civil laws, all of those laws you see written throughout those pages of the Old Testament. And as we saw last week, though the church is rooted in Old Testament Israel, it was a brand new entity, a new people group, a new man see. As a matter of fact, Paul said this in Ephesians 2, in verses 14 to 16, he said, For he himself, that is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, listen to how he did that, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man, one new uh, humanity, if you will, in place of the two. In other words, through the cross now, those things have been set aside because the gospel was going to go to the nations. And the impossibility ultimately of imposing these things in different nations and cultures, that would have been something it was then and it would be now that created hostility between Jew and Gentile. Now that's abolished. And in Christ, those things are only pointing to Him and we are not observing them in that way anymore the church would not be a repackaged Israel, nor a continuation of Israel. It is an entire new body in place of the two, meaning Gentiles and Jews. There were people from the very beginning trying to impose these things upon the Gentiles. That happened in Acts 15. 
Some of the believers were told who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them, that means Gentiles, and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And Peter finally stood up and he said, why are you putting God to the test, placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Because quite frankly, as Peter is being frank, the weight and yoke of the law, all of it, was too heavy for them. Why are you trying to do this now to these Gentile people who would have no context for this, didn't grow up in it, we couldn't even hold it. The church of Jesus Christ would be a new entity, not a repackaged Judaism. As a matter of fact, that wouldn't work. Jesus himself said this. He said the disciple, or well, this is the story. The disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And here's what Jesus said. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. He says, neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskin, so both are preserved. What was his point? Well, apparently if you sewed on a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, then that shrinks, then that would tear away and cause a greater tear. Similarly, if you took new wine, poured it into an old wineskin, as that wine began to ferment, that process, it would break the old wineskin. So what did he have to do? He has to create a new wineskin to pour in the new wine of the gospel in the church, you see. This is why we do things differently. This is why when people say to you, Oh, well, if you're going to follow the Bible, then why do you eat bacon? (laughs) If you're going to follow the Bible, why do you have a shirt that's made of cotton and polyester? Because you can't have mixed fabrics in your shirt. Friends, because that was the old wineskin in the old covenant. And frankly, it didn't work for them either. And now we have the new wine of the new gospel of Jesus Christ, what it was all pointing to, the new people of God. And so we have been given fresh garments and fresh wineskins. Friends, it is important to understand that we are the people of God in this new covenant era. In all the discussions about Israel, please be cautious with telling just anybody that Israel is God's people. I understand what you mean. But the problem is, if you're not careful with the wrong people, they may get the impression that Israel now, as God's people, means they're okay with God. They're not. And it's because they're God's people in that old covenant era and because of their forefathers Abram and the promises made to him it's because of that they still exist and they're still harassed and persecuted and in a lot of trouble all the time because there is people 
and they have rebelled against Him, and they have rejected the Messiah. In this new covenant age, we, the church, comprised of both Jew and Gentile, we are the people of God representing Him here in this world. The new humanity with the restored image of our Creator armed with the gospel of Jesus Christ and commanded to go out and represent Him well. Peter put it this way, using, by the way, Old Testament language. He said, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We are His people, the church, the new covenant people of God in Jesus Christ, representing Him in all we do. And that's why He said, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the nations honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You see the priority of being the church, the great privilege of being the church, representing God in this world, letting our works shine in such a way that the world sees us and it brings glory to our Heavenly Father. What a privilege it is to be a member of Christ's church. May we live up to that name this week. Let's pray.